Hey everyone, welcome to Resilience Unraveled. This podcast is the result of my fascination with subjects like resilience, accountability, burnout, life fulfillment and other life and work-based performance issues, as well as many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, people and organisations, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories and expertise, as well as my own synthesis of the key issues, strategies, tips, tools and resources to thrive in life. If you find this podcast useful, why not go over to our site qedod.com. If you'd like some resources on how to manage and beat burnout, head to qedod.com forward slash burnout 2019 for some goodies. Stay tuned to the end to find out details of how to order a free ebook. Enjoy the podcast. So today I'm talking to Angela Andrews, and um, Angela's going to talk about a very interesting subject. And um, and whilst it's something that we all think we know something about, or maybe we know people who have this condition, it's actually very interesting to talk to people who have a unique perspective. So first of all, hello, Angela. Hi. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. So um, I can tell immediately from your accent that you're not you're not in sunny England at the moment. So where are you based? <laughs> I'm in New Jersey in the United States. Um, I wish I was in England. Um, I'll get there someday. <laughs> a lot of yes, it's it's one of those things, isn't it? I think a lot of Brits like to go to America, and a lot of Americans like to come over here, and uh, it's actually quite fascinating to see each other's culture. Culture, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Well, tell me your story. All right. So um, I am autistic. Um, I am a data scientist with Johnson & Johnson. Um, and I have five children, um, all of whom are on the autism spectrum. And uh, my husband potentially is as well. He's actually going through the diagnostic process currently. So, yeah. Um, so a little bit about me. Um, I currently live in New Jersey. I used to live in the Midwest. It's where I spent most of my life. So right. And so basically, we're going to talk about the this condition of autism today. So mm-hmm. maybe for those for those who don't know enough about it, and I certainly don't know as much as I should. Tell tell me what it is and how how what it's all about. Okay. So autism is a Um, I call it a neurodiverse condition. Um, It's technically defined as a disability. Um, However, a lot of the disabling parts of autism, depending on the severity and struggles that a person faces individually, a lot of them can be mitigated um, just through social awareness, through self-awareness as well, knowing what your limits are. Um, it primarily affects a couple areas. So, for example, um, autism being a spectrum, it's got, for example, the speech area, which is one that people commonly think of. However, they frequently think people with autism can't speak or speak very late um, or, you know, can't really speak for themselves. Um, That's not true, um, obviously, because I'm talking right now. Um, (laughs) It's actually split. There's two, two areas for speech, for example. So you have the people who are delayed or don't speak at all, um, in their lives. 
That doesn't mean they don't communicate. It means that they just don't verbally communicate. Um, a lot of them learn sign language. A lot can type. Um, we've actually currently got an employee at Johnson & Johnson who's nonverbal but is very brilliant as a scientist and is able to communicate through typing and signing and writing. Um, then you've got the other side who actually speak very, very early. Right. Um, and tend to be hyperlexic as well. Um, so they start reading very early. They sound like little professors a lot of the time. Um, I fell into that category. Um, I was, at my first birthday, I could say my full name. Um, wow. yeah. <laughs> by the time I was two, I could say my name, address, um, who the president was, who the vice president was. My, my, my parents recorded this for me. So, you know, um, and I was reading small children's books by the time I was three. Wow. So I was on that end of it. Um, my daughters were as well. My sons, however, were delayed. Um, both speak now, but one was almost three years old before he started really saying anything. The other one was closer to four, four and a half years old before right. he started talking and really didn't start to talk till he was five. Right. Um, so it can go both ways. And so, what, um, and so, what are the um, what what else do you notice other than speech? Well, there's definitely social. Right. Um, that's a big one. I think also, I think that's what people mostly how people mostly notice the notice the condition as is that was that would that be fair? I would say that's a big part of it. I'd say it's a combination of social and sensory. Right. Um, so the social side, one of the very big misconceptions is that autism means you don't like people. You don't want to be around people. You don't want friends. You just want to be left alone. That's actually 95% of the time that's untrue. Right. Um, just like people who are neurotypical, which is what the typical word in the autism community is for those who are not autistic. Um, People who are neurotypical range in how much they like to interact with others, and it's just the same in autism. It's a personality thing. Right. The problem comes in with some of the innate abilities to recognize and learn social behavior. So, for example, um, I'm fairly baseline. So even if I've met you five times, if I meet you in a new setting, I might not recognize you. Um, I have difficulty reading facial expressions and body cues, body language. That's very common. Um, it's also common people can have trouble reading voice tone. The lack of eye contact is a big one. Um, talking to someone with autism can look like, can look like you're talking to someone who's very distracted. So, um, that's a big giveaway that a lot of people notice is that they're talking to someone who will not look them in the eyes. And why, um, and why is that? What, what, what's, what's sort of going on there? What's, what's the autistic person doing at that point? And it's a combination of things. Mm -hmm. um, the first one is that eye contact is actually painful. Right. Because it's so overwhelming. Um, you get a lot of information looking into other people's eyes. Right. Um, my daughter jokes that when people ask her why won't you make eye contact, she says, 
Well, they say the eyes are the window to the soul. I don't want to see your soul. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the biggest thing is, is that when you're struggling to read facial expression and looking in someone's eyes and their eyes aren't matching what you think you're reading, it leads to considerable confusion. Yeah. So that's a big part of it. The other part is actually a comorbid disorder that's so common in autism, it's, it almost should be just a symptom. Um, it's anxiety. So when you notice an autistic person who, rather than make eye contact, we're just looking down, is looking everywhere. Constantly, like, gauging where everything is, who's moving where, who's doing what. That's anxiety. Yes. So that's another reason somebody with autism may not be making eye contact at all, is they feel nervous in their surroundings, and it's almost like PTSD, where you have to know what's going on around you at all times. Right. So that's, that's two big reasons that, at least from myself, from you know my colleagues who are autistic and my children, that's pretty much consistently agreed upon is the two big reasons you won't see eye contact. Yes. And it really shouldn't be forced. I know that's a big thing that people do. You know, force a child to look me in the eye. Um, first thing to point out, that is only a Western culture thing. You go over into an Eastern culture and make eye contact the way that people do here, you're considered rude. So it is, first of all, only in, you know, Western countries that we try to force people to make eye contact. The second thing is, is you have to choose. Do you want the person to hear what you're saying and understand, or do you want eye contact? You're not going to get both. Because if you make us focus on making eye contact, the only thing we're thinking about is make appropriate eye contact, look away, at, you know, after X number of seconds and you know, don't stare and make your face look like this. I mean, my entire focus is going to be on trying to mask, is what we call it, or look normal, right. rather than on what you're actually saying. Right. So it's kind of a choice. Is it that important for you to, for me to look in your eyes? Because if it is, I can guarantee you're wasting your breath so I won't hear a word you're saying. Right. So. And, so, and so you see that... With autistic people, there are higher levels of general anxiety. Is that is that a sort of common correlation? Oh, absolutely. So the current numbers for anxiety disorders is 85 to 90% of autistic individuals have a diagnosed comorbid disorder with anxiety. Wow. Um, it could be generalized anxiety, it could be panic disorder, it could be agoraphobia, could be a you know, phobic disorder other than agoraphobia. Um most have at least one, if not two or three. Um, one of my daughters has three different anxiety disorders and really struggles with her anxiety. Um, I have one, um, but on, I also have, and this is also very unfortunately common in autism, I also have PTSD. Because the way that we experience the world is very different and can be very, very painful. So what people think is helpful can be extremely traumatic okay, so and ends up causing lasting damage. So tell me, tell so, me, a, bit more, tell me a bit more Tell me a bit more about that. How, how do you mean? Um, for example, they're starting to see that certain types of therapy that children and young adults go through 
um, such as applied behavioral therapy or ABA. Um, some of the cognitive therapies as well are actually causing more harm than good um, because the focus in those types of therapies and in many of the therapies that were given in the 80s and 90s and even still now is to normalize the child rather than help the child function with their strengths and weaknesses. It's to make them appear non-autistic, which causes extreme damage mentally, but also psychologically, and it damages the self-esteem. So there's a very, very strong correlation between receiving these kinds of therapies, PTSD, depression, and suicide. Because you're essentially teaching this person, this child, the way they are is unacceptable. And that their needs don't matter as much as looking normal does. I see. And that's a very damaging thing. So if you go to, into any of the autistic communities, for example, online, you'll see many of them talk about in their rules for like the support groups, things like that, that if you are pro-ABA, you're not welcome. Because so many of the people in the group are so badly traumatized that you'll trigger them by talking about how wonderful it is when here they've been suffering horribly because of it. Wow. So, um, in the United States, we, we look at it akin to the conversion therapy that used to happen. Right, I see. Yes. So, because you're essentially trying to convert an autistic person to a normal person. I see. And actually, of course, it's it's just a different definition. Normal is that is that the way to yeah. think about it? Well, we a, a big movement now is to look at it as a neurodiverse condition. Autism is not fatal. It's not going to significantly like shorten my lifespan, except for you know currently the lifespan of an autistic individual is only 55 years but that's the number one cause of death is actually suicide yes so it's not that the disease the, the diagnosis itself isn't fatal however people with autism are often treated very very badly especially those who are either really struggling or meaning like nonverbal, have significant learning disabilities, have significant psychological issues, they get the, we'll say the, the short end of the stick on that, where they get pretty much every negative condition you can get with autism. Right. The and other end of the, the spectrum as well that don't have perhaps the learning disabilities are actually at the most risk because they also realize that they're being mistreated and realize it's not fair. Right. And realize that they're different. So bullying is a horrendous problem that they deal with. Mm. Um, refusal to, ex to accept that they're autistic. I commonly get that, actually. Um, I'll tell somebody, oh, I'm autistic. And they'll say, oh, no, you're not. Or aren't we all a little autistic? And it just, you know, the testing is horrendous that you have to go through to get diagnosed. It's not an easy diagnosis to get. A lot of people think it's overdiagnosed because you can just walk into your doctor and get a diagnosis that is absolutely not true. Really? You have to see multiple doctors and go through hours of testing. Um, if you're diagnosed as a child, at least in the school districts in the United States, I cannot speak to outside, 
you are retested every two to three years for autism. They make you undergo it every couple of years to keep any supports that you have. Um, so when someone tells you they're autistic, this wasn't a, I went to the doctor with a list of symptoms and said, hey, can you diagnose me with this? This was a, I went to my general practitioner who did formal testing as well as medical testing. Um, I've had brain scans done to make sure there's nothing neurologically like a tumor or something else mm. um, causing, if it's in a lack of speech, for example, they will do all of that to make sure that there's not another physical reason. Um, you have to go to a psychologist and go through hours of testing. And then you have to go through IQ and language testing as well. So it is very difficult to get diagnosed with autism. It's not easy to do at all. The waiting list is horrendous. I know people who are who have been waiting for a couple of years now to get tested because there's just simply not enough um, experts out there. And it, a lot of it's not covered by insurance. If you're living in the, in the United States, as you know, we don't have universal health care. So that's coming out of your pocket. Right. And it's not cheap. So when someone says, aren't we all a little autistic, or no, you're not, you can talk, or my favorite one is, you're a girl, you can't be autistic. I love that one. Wow. Um, <laughs> Goodness. But, um... And it's such, it, seems, it seems to be such a, um, it's a, it's, a, it's a condition you seem to run into quite a bit, so it seems quite, it seems quite peculiar that it's such a, an onerous post process. It is. It's very... Well, a lot of children get diagnosed young. If you got diagnosed very, very young, you had significant struggles as a child. Yeah. So, for example, my boys were diagnosed young um, because they were not speaking and they weren't social. They wouldn't, you know, other children, for example, will look at mom's face when they smile or, you know, when you talk to them, whatever, whereas my kids did not, especially my younger son. Um he wouldn't let anybody else hold him because it seemed like nobody could hold him right. When he was able to walk and crawl, he would go and like sit and stare at moving objects or just spin things around and around and around. It was just, it was very clear, even with having other autistic children, there was, it was very clear he was um, struggling more. So, you know, it was very, it was still an onerous process to go through, but he was quicker to get a diagnosis because it was very obvious that what was going on. I see. The so, girls and myself, however, mm-hmm. were very difficult. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you don't have the speech delays, if you don't have any learning disabilities, it's, and if you happen to be female, because for some reason it's still firmly believed that girls are a lot less likely to be autistic. Hmm. I say, look at my family. There's three girls, two boys. The girls are all autistic. So <laughs> Right. Interesting. Yeah. So, so, so think about this, at, uh, rather than thinking the family level, if we think more at the work level, how, yeah. how, how do things work out? How do things work in the workplace for autistic people? Are there things, really, things that can be done to make life easier, for example? Oh, absolutely. So, and it, I will say, unfortunately, it does depend where you work. Right. Um, I've had jobs that were horrendous 
I've had um, jobs that I left due to bullying or I lost due to them finding out I'm autistic and suddenly deciding I'm not capable of doing the job anymore. Um, and then I have the job I have currently, which nobody could ever pay me to leave it. Um, <laughs> yes. So one of the big things is there's a real need for workplaces to realize that by by not only hiring people who are autistic, but by supporting their unique needs, sensory is going to be a big one in the office. Um, so that could be any type of sensory. Um, people usually only think of the five senses. There's actually seven. Um, the, they're just not the ones taught in school. There's proprioceptive and vestibular, and those come into play as well. Right. Um, for example, for me, I'm very noise sensitive, and it's gotten worse as I get older, unfortunately. Right. Most people's hearing starts to go. Apparently, mine gets sharper. I'm not real sure how that happens. Right. Um, <laughs> and then um, visual. So it could be light, and it could, or it could be movement. So I'm very easily distracted. I'm very anxious. So if I'm sitting in an open concept type of seating arrangement, I'm literally being bombarded constantly. And the way that my brain works, I can't shut any of it out. Right. So most people can block out background noise or block out visual distraction. My brain focuses on every single bit of it. Wow. And then I become overwhelmed, and eventually it leads to what we call a meltdown or a shutdown. Um, and I have, unfortunately, have had them at work before, very rarely, because my current job is very supportive. Um, but, like, one just happened Friday. From We were in a team meeting, and it was very loud, very ugly, very bright. There were people close by to me, and it was it was a very long meeting. It was uh, almost six hours, wow. and I only made it about three and a half. Yeah, and it was just because it was so painful. It wasn't that it's annoying, and I think that's what people, especially in the workplace, need to recognize is I don't mean that it gives me a slight headache. I don't mean that it irritates me and makes me a little grouchy. I mean that it feels like somebody has taken an ice pick and stabbing my eardrum with it. Repeatedly. Right. Wow. It's horribly painful. I would rather have children again than have to deal with it. Um, <laughs> wow. It's that bad. So, um, tactile so, is a bad one, too. And understanding that is, is critical. So if you hire an autistic person, because obviously they have amazing strengths and intelligence and yes. they're good team players and they add tremendously to the workplace and... You know, we want that sort of diverse culture where we can welcome all sorts of different types of people. Um, Absolutely. So, so if I'm a manager or a, um, you know, what's what's the best way for us to get the best out of people who may have this condition? Um, well, the first thing to do is always remember that when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person. Yeah, I see. Um, so, because, for example, in my company currently, I lead the employee resource group for autistic individuals or their families. So, you know, if you're a caregiver of a child with autism or you work here and you're autistic, yeah. um, we have a large number of autistic individuals in the workplace here. Right. What the first thing that managers need to overcome is the fear. Because you... 
you're going to have people, I guarantee you have somebody who's autistic working for you. If you are any moderate to large size business or have more than a couple people on your team, it's likely, especially in certain fields, whether or not they feel safe to let you know that is critical. If they feel like you're going to judge them, if they feel like they could lose their job, or that telling you isn't going to make any difference, they're going to do something called masking, which will negatively affect their work, but it also negatively affects their physical and mental health. Okay. Because it's exhausting. So what, what does that look like? So a person who masks that's autistic is going to spend most of their energy trying to mimic the people around them. So, for example, you might see um, what usually becomes, when it becomes obvious is when their mask slips, we'll say. So let's say you're in a meeting, there's a lot of stress, and you notice them rocking back and forth. Someone will point it out, they usually do, and then they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I was just thinking. And then they put that mask right back on. But you'll see little slips like that because you can't pretend 24-7. You'll notice they're unhealthy a lot of the time. They get sick easily. They may discuss other mental health issues, but not that, not that they're autistic. Right. You definitely might notice a different personality entirely if you happen to see them in a work setting versus not. Right. Um, but the biggest thing is going to be there are symptoms because you can't mask everything so i think it's absolutely critical for managers for people managers to understand what autism looks like first of all in what they call higher functioning i hate that term because it's a misnomer mm-hmm. it's how do you experience my autism not how am i experiencing it yeah. so people who would be in an office setting for example People who would be in a job, professional or not, um, you know, it knowing what those symptoms are, as well as knowing the gender differences and how they come across. Because testing is shown, for example, that girls as young as three years old are already learning to mask in preschool and kindergarten. Wow. Because the social area of the brain is a little different in girls as it is. I see, yes. So you'll see that they're not really playing with the other kids if you really look. They're just mimicking the other kids. But they're not really in the group. And you'll see that a lot at work, too. Um, I always feel like when I used to mask, because I try very hard not to now, um, I never really seemed to have my own thoughts or opinions. When I was, like, at work, for example, I, I just, I mimicked what other people did or said or thought. So it can be a real clue, but it also really hindered me. Yeah. Very true. badly. Yeah. So once I stopped masking and started telling people at work and told my manager and getting accommodations, ever, I would say everything completely flipped. Like, life got a lot more pleasant. Um, It got a lot easier. I'm not going home at 5 o'clock in the evening and passing out for the night because I'm exhausted. Um, I'm able to really 
come up with unique ideas and use my talents because I'm not focusing all my energy on being somebody I'm not. Right. And the biggest thing is, is it's helping slowly my self-esteem because when you feel like it's not okay to be who you are, you got to think what that does to you. Yes. You, you begin to feel like you're two people and you begin to feel like nobody really likes you for who you are. And that can really spiral into some pretty significant mental health issues. Yes. So I would say in the workplace, the number one thing is you, you got to make your employees trust you enough that they can come to you with this kind of stuff. So, and so, you've got to be educated. So there's a lot less optimism, a lot more sensitivity, a lot more um, anxiety. So you've got to build a sort of culture where those people or people with this condition can um, relax a little bit more. Is, is, is that yeah. the sort of nub of it, really, is it? Yeah, and, and to accept that they're going to do things a little different. So, right. for example, if you're sitting in a meeting with me, I'm not going to be sitting still. There is no way I'm going to be sitting still. Because for me to focus, because my brain is going a thousand miles a minute, for me to focus, I need to be doing something as well as talking and engaging. So I might be stimming, which is the word that's used for self-regulating. We don't know why they picked that word. That's just what they call it. Right. Um, it's, it's a way of regulating sensory input. So it's almost like, for example, if you see a, an autistic individual who's flapping their hands. Yeah. That self-regulation, it's almost like they're taking the auditory and the visual and the tactile sensory, pushing it through their brain and straight out again. It's almost like an electrical conduit where it's just taking it in and pushing it right back out so that your brain can actually focus on what you're supposed to be doing. Right. So the idea of stopping that, or I guess what they call quiet hands in the schools here, is actually very harmful. If you just let them, I mean, they're not hurting anybody unless it's a unless it is a harmful stim. Those do happen. Yes. Obviously, you need to change them if they're self-harming. Um, but if they're just rocking a little bit, or they're flapping their hands, or they're, you know, my son likes to hold. Um, for example, he's got knotted up shoelaces that we tied up into knots for him, and he just likes to wave them back and forth in the air while he's working or thinking. Right. It's not hurting anybody. It's not making any noise. Mm. It looks a little odd if you don't know what's going on, but just ask. Yes. And they'll say, oh, I'm stimming. I need to concentrate. Or I'm feeling overwhelmed. So, yes. you know, but it's, it helps him immensely. He's gone from nonverbal and just really struggling with sensory and all sorts of other problems to being a sophomore in high school who gets mostly A's, uh, occasionally a B. He's in the marching band, um, does an excellent job with it because one of his hidden talents is music, right. which mom was thrilled about because I'm a total band geek. I always have been. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I got one. Hey. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's if you think about what mar marching band entails, it's the perfect thing for someone who's autistic. Because of all the patterns. Yes, of course. So he memorizes it very, very quickly. Um, and that's a big one in the workplace and in school is stop focusing on what you think we can't do. Focus on what we can do. 
you know, I have short-term memory issues. Most autistics do. Yeah. That's why I write everything down. Yeah. And I have, I think, if I, I have five different calendars. I have physical ones. I have digital ones. Wow. I have reminders all over the place. Yeah. I'm not forgetting anything. Yes. Um, but that's what I need because if someone says to me, okay, why don't we have a quick meeting at X time? If I don't write that down, I'm not showing up because my brain's going to have forgotten it in a minute and a half. Um, however, I can memorize facts that, well, I call them useless facts, but, um, <laughs> my, my friends are teasing me lately that I sound like an encyclopedia. Because I seem to know a little bit about a lot of stuff. And that's because my interests change. But that's one of the talents of autism is you have hyper-focuses or areas of... They call them, in diagnostic speak, they call it obsessions. And I get that because sometimes they get so, like, overwhelming, the need to focus on it, that you forget to eat you might forget to sleep. Um, it can become very obsessive, almost like an addiction. So hard so, so, so sorry, sorry to leap in and cut across you. I didn't really mean to, but um, you you were talking about yeah. at work. It's about making use of what an autistic person has as a natural ability. For example, you talked yeah. about patterns. So are there any particular work um, environments or jobs that particularly suit the skill set of autistic people? It, well, there are tendencies um, in the data. So um, a lot of people with autism tend to go towards music, math, science, um, areas like that. Um, for example, I'm, I was in psychology. I'm now a data scientist um, because the social and sensory overload in psychology was too much for me personally. Um, but keeping in mind, every person with autism is very, very different. So, but a lot of them tend to, I would say most of them, if not all, need somewhere to escape though. Right. So for example, I'm very outgoing, um, for, to a point, but I wear out very, very quickly. And I've had, for, if I know that there's a big event coming up that I have to go to, I will probably take the afternoon beforehand off work and the whole next day after because I need to recover her. Like, and I don't mean recover as in, okay, I'm a little stressed. I want some time away. I mean, like, I'm like, I've run a marathon. I'm physically exhausted. Yeah. It's just, it's very exhausting to have all that input and having a boss that understands that my current boss, her attitude, first of all, she's been amazing, but her attitude has been, I don't care when you work as long as you get your work done, and you always do. So if you're exhausted right now because something's going on and you need to take a nap this afternoon, then I, you know, I know that you're going to be on the computer till 2 in the morning tomorrow because you're going to get hyper-focused on something and want to get it done. So she understands that my work hours are a little funny sometimes, depending on what's going on. She knows if I cancel a meeting because I'm having, a, as I call it, a bad sensory day, that it's significant and that she should not pressure me to just deal with it. Because it's like telling someone to deal with having the flu. You know what I mean? Like, I can't control when that happens. Yes. 
and ignoring it just hurts me. And it makes me feel invalidated. Like my pain or my suffering is not valid and it doesn't matter. And sending that kind of message is what leads people to hide it. And then they start, and so this is something I've seen continuously at work. Um, people who are hiding it start getting written up for things. Yes, I see. They start getting in trouble because, oh, they're not socially doing what we expect or they're not, you know, doing this or that the way we expect. And it's the problem is they're, they're using the wrong ruler to measure them. Yeah. They're looking at them as a neurotypical individual and saying, you're not keeping up to X standard rather than, oh, the problem is she simply misunderstood because she takes things literal and needs specific instructions. And I just made a general comment and assumed she would know what I was talking about. Yeah. Like, so it could be a very simple fix. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is this is too big a subject to attempt to do in more in one session, and we did agree that we'd come back and revisit the whole subject yes. again. But I think that's been a really interesting. I mean, you give me so much to think about. It. It's been a really really interesting way to start um, or an exploration to autism off, Angela. Thank you so much for your time today, and um, sure. and then hopefully we can reconvene. And I know you're going Absolutely. to write books and do all sorts of amazing things. So I know you're an advocate for the whole subject. And um, perhaps we can reconvene quite soon. That would be wonderful. I look forward to it. You take care. Speak to you soon. Thanks for listening today. You can go to our site, qedod.com forward slash podcasts and subscribe to hear other titles in our series. Or you can contact us at info at qedod.com to hear and find out more about tough love, leadership, accountability, resilience and burnout. You can go to our site, qedod.com forward slash burnout2019 to hear and get access to a load of resources to help you manage and fight burnout. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash free ebook to hear more about the fundamentals of resilience. Until the next episode, keep on thriving.